Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. All right, well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is Tim, one of the pastors here, and this morning we get to start a, a new series in First John. Uh, so if you have a Bible or if you use your phone or some other device for um, your scriptures, go there to First John 1. That's where we'll be this morning, um, and I'll read that scripture uh, here in a second, verses 1 through 10. Uh, but it's good to know, so this is actually my first Sunday where I'm like in person and healthy. And this is, this is a good Sunday because it's icy. Like I know y'all are like the most committed people. Like I know that. Like the roads aren't that bad, but people are like, yeah, I, I can, and listen, if you're at home watching this, just don't pay any attention to what I'm about to say. Um, but like y'all, like you, you're, you're committed, you're here. Um, so, and those of you who are glad you're online as well. Um, but it's good to be here in person, to have a voice, to be healthy, and to get to speak from God's word. Um, so with that, let me read First uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, And before I preach that, let me pray. Father, we do not take for granted that the words that I just read for us were inspired by your spirits, were given to a man named John who spent several years with your son Jesus in the flesh. And so whatever we need to know about you, our Father, he knows much more than us. And so give us ears to hear what John speaks to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When God thinks about you, what is he thinking? When you go to him to pray, or a few minutes ago we were just singing, hopefully singing in the presence of our God. When you go to pray, when you go to sing, and you come into God's presence, what's on his mind about you? Is it indifference? 
Maybe you've thought from time to time, surely the God of the universe has more important things to do than to talk to you about whatever happened to you the previous day. I mean, he's running the universe. So when you sit down to pray, just keep it simple, keep it short. Uh, Only the big stuff, that's all he wants to hear about. Because ultimately, God has much more to do and to worry about than you. Or maybe you have had just a sustained season of praying or speaking to God and not really feeling much in return. And over time, you've begun to wonder, is God like actually there? Is he listening to me? Is he present to me? Or is he indifferent to me? When God thinks about you, is it indifference? Or when God thinks about you, do you think he's disappointed? That when it comes time to confess sin, surely God's perspective on you is is thinking, listen, we've been talking about the same stuff for several years. You need to get your stuff together and then come and pray. Once you have your sins taken care of, you've had some victory in the Christian life, then come and pray to me. That when you sit down to pray to God, it's disappointment that he feels towards you. Then when God thinks about you, what is he thinking? We're going to spend uh, the next eight weeks in the book of First John together. And as I mentioned a second ago, the first John was written by an apostle of Jesus, someone who spent his earthly life with Jesus. At the time now John has, has written this letter, though, he is a much older man, probably well over 80 years old, which means he, he has spent his entire life walking with God and walking with Jesus and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And at the end of his Christian life, he writes this letter to several churches that he knew in the area of Asia. And I think John gets at this question about what God is thinking about when he thinks about you. And so over the next eight weeks, we're just gonna, we're gonna think about what, think, what God thinks about when he thinks about us. And my answer to that is that when God thinks about you, it's love. When you come into God to pray, to sing, to be present to him, when God thinks about you, he loves you. And we're going to spend the next eight weeks unpacking that because the reality is that can feel like a very far cry from our experience of God in the world. Now, how many of us actually live our entire existence from a place of secure confidence that God loves me, that he loves us, that his posture towards this world is love, and therefore we are incredibly hopeful people as we walk about our lives? How many of us like, just live completely out of secure confidence that God loves me? And so my hope for this series is that this idea that God is love is not just going to be some like theological line you have in your mind, but actually the experience out of which you live your life. That the most foundational truth about your existence, the most important thing about you is that God loves you. That's my hope for this series. And where John starts is with a couple of things we need if we're going to live out of that experience, God is love. If we're going to live that experience, we need fellowship and we need safety. So first, uh, fellowship. Um, I have a a friend named Eric who has probably uh, gotten as close to becoming a Christian as 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 you can get to becoming a Christian without actually crossing the line. Uh, and Eric would always tell me a, a similar reason for why he didn't feel like he could become a Christian. And, and the reason was, was this. He would just say, listen, if, if there is a God, 
um, and he wants me to know him and follow him, then why don't I have a more profound experience of him? Like he could send an angel into my living room right now and be like, Eric, God's legit. Give him your life. But he's never done that. Or Jesus, like he could come into my living room right now and say, Eric, I died for you. I love you. Give your life to me. He could do that. He's never done that. Right? And so, and, and beyond that, Eric would tell me, listen, it's, it's not just that there's been no like direct visible experience of God. It's also that like in my felt experience of this world, I can live a long time without sensing there's a supreme supernatural being in the universe who desperately wants me to follow him. If there is a God, I should have more experience of him. And I hear that a lot. I think that's probably actually the, one of the primary reasons today why people don't take up a life with God because there's no felt experience of him. And, and listen, that, that objection or that idea does not go away once you become a Christian. Right? Read the Psalms. The Psalms are full of people praying, like, God, where are you? Are you indifferent to me? Psalm 13 begins, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It's a different language than my friend Eric, but it's the same sentiment. God, if you are there in real, why do I not have a more profound experience of you? So John, I think, gives us a couple things to respond to that in the first four verses here in 1 John 1. And, and the first is John stresses his eyewitness experience with Jesus. Um, and that's important in this context because as John writes this letter, he's writing to a number of churches in Asia. At this point, we're dividing. Lots of people were leaving the church most likely. And because they were leaving the church, John is now writing into this church community to explain what's, what's happening, why so many people have left. And John begins this letter by claiming his authority as an apostle through his eyewitness experience of Jesus. Uh, because in this day, uh, in, or at least in the early church, when the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life were still around, they carried enormous weight in the early church. So one of the earliest Christian documents we have that's not a part of the Bible uh, was written by a man named Papias. It was around, uh, written around 100, 110 AD. And it was, uh, it was a work basically of kind of, of, of church history. And one of the things Papias says in that, that writing uh, is that he knew personally two eyewitnesses who lived at the time of Jesus. And one of those most likely was the Apostle John because Papias lived in Asia, which is where John lived for most of his life. And it's where John is writing here in First John. And Papias doesn't just say, I knew personally two people who lived with Jesus during his earthly ministry, but he points out in the early church, when you, if you were an eyewitness to Jesus' life, you carried authority in the church. So when John says, listen, I was there, we were there, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. That's not just John saying I was an eyewitness to Jesus, it's also his claiming his authority in the community, which I think is even important. That in any time early Christian uh, pastors, apostles wrote, whenever they wrote from a position of authority, they never said, listen, I'm in power, so do what I say. No, John says, I was there with Jesus. So listen to me. So he, it's, it is him saying, listen, I'm an authoritative voice in this community for everything that I'm about to say. But, but also what's important from this is while, while God maybe has never like showed up in your living room or Eric's, my friend, he has been in many living rooms. And our even witness as a church is that we are descendants from these eyewitnesses. And what we have is their message, not our message. 
So that's where John starts. Listen, I saw him, I touched him. Jesus is real. But then he moves in and he uses a word a couple of times in 1 John 1, fellowship. And he says, basically, my whole ministry, the reason why uh, we proclaim Jesus to you, verse 3, is so that you too may have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Like John defines his entire Christian life as fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. God ultimately wants fellowship with, with you. So what does that mean? Fellowship, like that's a super churchy word. So let me, let me unpack that. If maybe you've been around church for a long time and you're still like, I don't know what fellowship means or you're brand new to church. You're like, that sounds a little weird. What's fellowship? Um, think a couple of things when you think fellowship. First is the title to the series. Fellowship is, is love. God is love. And John actually will unpack this more in 1 John 4. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip there and read just really quickly what he says in verses 15 and 16 when he unpacks a little bit about what it means to be in fellowship with God. He says, 1 John 4 verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Abiding is another word for fellowship. It's presence. It's being with someone else. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, right? So we abide in fellowship with God, and by doing that, we now have come to believe that God loves us. So we've come to know and believe that the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So John, after 50 years of doing life with Jesus, and he was most likely a faithful Jew long before that probably, um, comes to say the entirety of my Christian experience is that I have fellowship with God and God is love. I have fellowship with love itself. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, when I first read through John's, one of John's other work, uh, the Gospel of John, I kind of thought John was like an arrogant guy. Um, and I wouldn't say that out loud, um, although I kind of just did. Um, but the, John refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved, loves. Which sounds like, listen, there are other disciples, and there's me. The disciple whom Jesus loves. I don't think that's an arrogant statement anymore. I think that's a man who knew that when God thought about him, it was love. Jesus loves me. So when John says, I want you to have fellowship with us, church leaders, church authority, because our fellowship is with God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, it's because this fellowship is an exchange of love. That's one thing. Um, but, but fellowship is more than that. Fellowship is not just love. Fellowship is an exchange. It's a back and forth. And now, before I go into that, I need to back up because this idea that God is love, we, we sort of take for granted in our culture. Like if, if, if there's anything probably our broader culture knows about the Bible is that it says God is love. It's probably the most well-known phrase in all of the Bible. And that's sort of unfortunate for us because at the time, that was a very revolutionary idea. If you were to talk about the gods in Asia where John is writing and you weren't a Christian and you were to say the gods are love, people would have been like, no, they're not. The gods are a little crazy, they're not love. 
Um, and to give you one example, there was a goddess named Artemis who was in Asia. So the people John is writing to would have been well known all the stories of Artemis. And Artemis uh, was a goddess. And uh, there was a moment in Artemis's life when another god did something that uh, she did not like. It was a little inappropriate, so I'm not going to share what it was. Um, but she, basically another god offends Artemis, the, uh, the goddess. So Artemis changes this other god into a deer, the animal deer, so that wild animals could tear that, that deer apart and eat it. That's, that's what the god Artemis was like. So if Artemis was to come to you and say, listen, I would like to have fellowship with you, your response to Artemis would be, I'm good. I don't want to be a deer and I don't want to be torn apart by wild beasts. Right? That's how people thought about the God. They were capricious. They were angry. They were vindictive. And into that culture, John says, God is not that. God is love. And he wants an exchange with you. He wants fellowship with you. Um, so in, in, in our cultural moment, we have a different problem. Our problem is that the phrase God is love, what that means is that I can do what I want. God just wants me to be happy. He would never judge me and I can live my life however I please. That's what it means that God is love. But that is not an exchange. That's not fellowship. So for example, if later today it's Sunday, which we all know means there's lots of football on later today. Uh, Those of us who are Colts fans know the Colts have to win to get into the playoffs today. So it's a very important day. So if I was to say to my wife, listen, uh, today my plans for Sunday afternoon are are this. I'm going to uh, watch football all day. I'm going to eat an obscene amount of nachos and I'm going to take at least two naps. Uh, my, her, that res, her response to that would be, that is not love because that's not an exchange, right? That's me saying, this is who I am. I'm going to push that on you and, and love me for who I am. I just want to be happy. But that, that's not love. That's not an exchange. And any culture that would say, well, God is love means I can do what I want. is missing the heart of what love is, which is an exchange. The fellowship requires us being willing to let the other party to, to restrain us to say no to us. Yes, to support us, to, to encourage us, to be on our side, but also to speak truth into our, our lives. And so David Benner, in his book on the love of God, he writes this. We have such an inborn tendency to run our own life and to pay our own way that unconditional love is both unbelievable and terrifying. In short, we want nothing of, us, of it. How many of us want to be loved by God like that? Where he can actually make demands on us. He can restrain us. That I don't just pray to God and say, listen, God, this is what I'm going to do this week. Give me your thumbs up. But, but actually, an actual exchange where I, I listen. All right, God, speak. <laughs> speak into my life. Change me, restrain me, support me. Let, what, what, God, it's, it's not just me speaking up to God. It's him speaking back and leading me forward because with an indifferent God, I can do what I want, right? God loves me. He set the universe up. Now you just go, go have a good time. If that's the extent of what God is, it's not love. But if on the other hand, I am, I'm created, I'm named, I'm known. That is both incredibly freeing, but also as Benner says, terrifying because it means I, I am not my own. And the one who loves me, loves me and desires to me, some, 
desires me to be something far more than what I am now. So, uh, do you actually want to be loved like that? So if we're going to enter into a relationship with the love of God, we need fellowship, one, but but we need something else. We need safety. Uh, Another friend of mine um, said something to me uh, a few months ago that I I remembered a lot because I I hear it all the time as a pastor. And and essentially what he said to me was, you know, when when I pray, I just imagine God thinking, how long have we been dealing with the same stuff? Same sin patterns, same struggles. How long have we been doing? It's like almost like God. We come into God's presence, and His response is, "You again, the same stuff." And I, I think that's a very common experience within the church. That most of us, when we pray to God, our thinking is, "Until I get my life into the proper place, God does not want to hear from me." That God, when He thinks about me, He's disappointed. And this is very destroying to the Christian life. And David Benner, again, in his book, Surrender to Love, he he says this about this way of approaching God. The central feature of any spiritual response to such a God will be an effort to earn his approval. Far from dealing to relax in his presence, you'll be vigilant to perform as well as you possibly can. The motive for any obedience you might offer Uh, the the motive for any obedience you might offer will be fear rather than love and there will be little genuine surrender. Surrender revolves relaxing and you must feel safe before you can relax. Benner is saying a couple of things. One is if you think that God is primarily his posture towards you is he's disappointed with you, then your entire Christian life has to be lived to change his mind about you. He doesn't love you yet, but he will someday when you get it together. And that's just a life of fear. It's a life of of crawling away from God instead of running to him. And and the reality is 1 John actually makes it seem like that is what's going on in the Christian life. Right, verse 5, John says this. This is the message we've heard uh, from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Isn't, that, isn't God saying, listen, if you're still sinning, if you're still doing the same stuff you've been doing for your entire life, you're walking in darkness. Therefore, you're not ready to come into the presence of God. That's what John is teaching us. But that gets to the other thing that Benner is saying to us, which is ultimately, well, if, if we never feel we are safe in the presence of God, if we're always concerned that the moment we do something wrong, he's just going to be disappointed with us again, we'll never be able to relax into his love. We'll never feel like he actually loves us because actually the reason he's now positively thinking of me is because I've changed his mind because I'm doing the good things. And the reality is the only way he'll love me is if I do right by him. That's not a safe relationship. Right? Any friendship that's built on you better, you better do what the other person wants in order for them to remain in relation, that's not a safe relationship. A safe relationship is I can be a loser. I can eat nachos all day and take two naps and, and my wife will say, let's talk about next Sunday in grace, right? You have to be safe to know that you are loved, but that creates the problem. How can we be safe with God who is light? 
how can you and I have this confidence that God loves us when he is light? There's no moral darkness to him whatsoever. And that's where John is going. And the first thing he uh, says in response to that tension is verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in other words, walking in the light is not sinlessness. Right? So when John says in verse 5, God is light, there's no darkness in him at all. And if you're walking in darkness, you can't, have, you can't have fellowship with him. The answer is not, well, then become sinless and then you can walk in his presence. No, the answer is confess your sin. Live a life of confession before the Lord. So walking in the lights is not sinlessness. It is a life of confession, a life of, of, of acknowledging I am a sinner. So apparently what John's getting at is there are people in this day who are claiming they don't have any sin. And that has been a, a theological strain throughout the history of the church. People come along sometime and they say, listen, eventually when you get your act together, the Holy Spirit fully indwells you, then you become a perfect person and you stop sinning. And John is saying, that is not true. Any, any Christian fellowship that's, that has people proclaiming, I am no longer in sin, is not true, John would say. But you can say that you're not a sinner while claiming you are a sinner. Where your heavenly theology is, oh yes, Father, forgive me, I have sinned. But your street theology is very different. Uh, let me illustrate it with, with this story from this week with my two kids. Um, so, uh, one of my boys had a birthday this week, and we always uh, blow up a bunch of balloons and, uh, and celebrate. Um, and, and a couple of them got balloons, and they were, they were blowing them up and then letting the air out in people's faces. Now, this was very disgusting because if you looked at the balloon that was filled up, there was just spit, like, all in it. It's like, I don't even know, how do you have that much liquid in yourself to begin with to get in the balloon? But they did. And so then they were doing it to one another. And so eventually, like, the balloon air, when it got let out of the, the air into your face, it was like getting hit by a fire hose of spit. It was disgusting. And, and so then one of our boys comes running to me and says, it's mad because the other brother has just unloaded a balloon full of spit into his face. And I'm just like, dude, you just, you've been doing the same thing to me, to your sister, to your brother. You've been doing the same thing the whole time. And now you're upset because it happened to you. And he just like that, just, he was not aware of the hip hypocrisy of his life at this point, right? How many Christians, right, we, when we pray, God, Father, forgive me, uh, I'm a sinner, and then we, we, we live in this world with such judgment towards other people. Our social media feed is, is filled with condemnation of people who live differently than us, who have different politics than us, who have different visions of this world than us. When someone sins against us, while well, we are grateful to go into the love and presence of God in the morning as we're praying, but then when someone else sins against us, we, we refuse to be kind towards them. Our heavenly theology, <laughs> we'll sing with, with the hymn, I stood beneath a debt I could never afford. My sins, they were many, but his mercy was more. But no one who knows us has ever experienced that kind of mercy or kindness from us. That our heavenly theology is I'm forgiven, but our street theology is you better change God's mind. He's disappointed in you, and one day when you're like me, he'll love you again. That when was the last time you repented of an actual sin 
to an actual person. I don't mean like in theory, like I'm a sinner, yeah, I do something. I mean actually you had to look someone in the eye and say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Or when someone else confronted you with something that you did that hurt them, your initial response was not defensiveness, was not anger, was not to blame them for the things that they had done to you, which is why, you know, had, had they not sinned against you, you would have lived in sinless perfection, but sadly it's their fault. How many Christians were defensive, were angry, were judgmental? And yet, the core profession of our faith is I'm a sinner. I'm not who God intends me to be yet. So I'm not surprised when other people encounter me as a sinner, because that's what I am. And when I, you know, do my own, like, blowing an air balloon full of spit on other people's faces, and they come to me, I, I remember, oh, I've done the same things. I have the same stuff in my own heart and in life. I think the greatest, or one of the greatest visions for whether or not you believe the gospel is how you treat sinners. Because that shows what you think about how God is treating you and your sin. And if you treat sinners with judgment, condemnation, arrogance, it means you're convinced you have changed God's mind about you. And the reason he loves you is not out of grace, but because you are a good person. And John is saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But that doesn't go, that doesn't deal with the problem, right? How can we be safe in the presence of God and be sinners? Be who we are, broken individuals. Well, that's where verse nine goes. Where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John says, if, if we don't live a life of defense, defensive judgment against other people, but instead we, we, just, we live a life of confession of sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. What does that mean, that he is faithful and just to forgive us? Well, faithfulness just means people do what they say. He keeps his promises. And on the, na- the last night of Jesus' earthly life, he had a meal with his disciples. And at that meal, Jesus had bread and had wine and, and said to his disciples, this, is, this, is, this bread, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And this blood, or this, this wine represents my blood, which will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you are in Christ, Jesus has promised to forgive you and he is faithful, he will do that. You don't have to, to live a life of trying to cover up your brokenness, trying to hide from the fact that you are a sinner because Jesus has told you, he's promised you. His blood was shed so that you would be forgiven. But you and I, we need more than that. It's not, promises are nice, we need more than that. And that's where the word just comes in. What does it mean that if we confess our sins, God is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, there's a reason why my friend Tim felt like, surely if I go into the presence of God, he's thinking, you again, we've dealt with the same stuff, right? That, that's the guilt we carry for being sinners. We know we're not who we are. We know ultimately when we go into God's presence, he probably should feel disappointment towards us. So how can we know that he won't? (laughs) Even when we've messed up, 
even when he actually should be disappointed with us. And that sh- he should be saying to us, listen, you go clean that up and then come talk to me. How can we know that's God's, that is never God's response to us? And the answer is in this word, just. We sang a song at the beginning of the service. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's from 2 Corinthians 5. And what that scripture is saying, when Jesus went on to the cross, he who knew no sin, which is Jesus, who lived a life of sinless perfection before, the, before his father, he who, who knew no, no sin became sin for us. So he, beca- he took on our sin. And so all of the disappointment that God should feel towards us all of the anger God should feel towards us, all of the judgment that God should pass towards us, instead of being given to us, has been given to Jesus on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. So when John says in 1 John 1, 9, that it, it is God's justice, which is why you should know that you are forgiven, it's because it would be unjust for God to hold sins against us that he's already given to Jesus. So when you come into the presence of the Father, you're not coming on the basis of your work, how you lived the past week. You are coming on the basis of the fact that Jesus has taken your sin from you. So all of the disappointment towards of God, all of the anger of God, all the judgment of God has been given to him so that it doesn't rest on you. So you can know and pray with confidence in the presence of God that when he thinks about you, it's love. Even when you failed him, especially when you failed him, Christianity, we have a a theological term to define this doctrine. It's called justification by faith. And this isn't just some theological idea. This is like the heart of our experience of God. And Michael Reeves in his book, uh, Rejoice and Tremble, he points out why this is so important for you and I, not just to believe in our minds, but to experience in our lives. He writes this, it's as though they, and he's talking about Christians who, who believe that we've been forgiven by, by sins, but haven't yet applied justification by faith into our life. He says, though they have been enlightened by the Spirit concerning their knowledge of sins, their knowledge of God's forgiveness remains patchy. And with that comfort of the gospel, and without that comfort of the gospel, they are left with a sinful dread of God, lurching between the spiritual highs of a Sunday and the spiritual sulks of a Monday where they crawl away from God in guilt. What 1 John 1, 9 says is you and I never again have to crawl away from God in guilt. Actually, like the, the times when it's most important for us to go into his presence is when we are sinning. Because the, the thing that is going to most stop you from breaking his law, from sinning, is to live in his love. To experience his love. Not to experience his shame and his disappointment and his anger and his fear. Which is why when churches become cultures of shaming and anger and judgment, we become anti-gospel because that doesn't change anyone. What changes people is the love of God poured out on the cross where he takes the shame, disappointment, and judgment we all deserve and it's been given to Jesus. So you and I can sit in this room today and know we sit under the love of God and not his anger, not his judgments, and not his disappointment. So what does all of this mean? Well, it means, it means two things as, we, as I close. One is go pray. Because when God thinks about you, when you enter into his presence, it's love. He loves you. He is faithful and just to forgive whatever you think should keep you from his presence. So go into his presence. He loves you. He has forgiven you by the blood of Jesus. So go to him. He loves you. That's one. But secondly, the love of God should not be our heavenly theology as a church. It should be our street theology. 
This should all, like this idea that you can just come into God's presence and he loves you even when you fail him should be the way people experience Liberty Bible Church. That we don't preach grace and then live a life that communicates God is disappointed with you. Clean up your act. One day you can be like us, the good people. That is not the gospel. The gospel is we are not the good people. We never have been, nor will we ever be the good people. And none of that matters. What matters is that we are loved by God and his disappointment has been given to Jesus so that we can come into his presence and be loved into people who actually will do his bidding, fulfill his law, do his works. So are you a safe person? Like where another person could come and confess their sins to you, confess their, their broken, the ways they failed and be met with love, not condescension, not judgments, not arrogance or pride, but knowing that we point people towards Jesus, not towards moral improvement, not towards turning their own lives around, not by picking themselves up by their bootstraps. No, we point people to the finished work of Jesus on the cross because that's the only way you and I will ever feel safe in the presence of God is knowing he has taken our disappointment. That our street theology should be, as a church should be, listen, we're all sinners, Right? We don't hide that. We're not trying to deceive ourselves. We're not trying to cover that up. We're not trying to run from that. We are broken sinners in this place, but we are loved by God despite it. We are far worse than we could have ever imagined, but we are far more loved than we could have ever hoped for. And that's our street theology. How amazing would it be to be a church that lives that out in its theology? Well, let's find out together. Let's pray. Father, your love may be one of the most radical ideas in all of the scriptures. No other religion teaches anything close to this. No other experience of the world teaches anything close to this, that you look fully on our faults and our sin. Nothing gets covered or hidden in your presence. And yet you still love us because of the work of your son, Jesus. Every person in this room needs to believe that more deeply than we did walking in. Whether we're not Christians and never have been and we need to fall in faith in Christ or we have been Christians a long time and we've forgotten, you love us even when we fail and that our confidence is not in our efforts but in the finished work of Christ. Make us believe it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.